Turn with me to Psalm 8, if you have a copy of God's Word, hard copy in your hands or digital copy on a phone. As I came in this morning, I saw on the screen a picture of my face in many French words. I don't know what they said. I just imagined it saying, this poor man only speaks English. So grab a box at the back if you need to. (laughs) I do bring you greetings from Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, where my family and fellow brother pastors and congregation will be gathering this morning in praise of our King. What a sweet thing to gather on Sunday morning where countless millions around the world gather in worship of our King. What a joy to see the dozens or hundreds that gather together. And then to think about the millions gathered in praise of Jesus. I bring you greetings from desiringgod.org, our good friend Daniel Henderson, who we love to partner with. Uh, We greet you, we thank God for you. French matters to us, and we're excited to partner with various French initiatives, as well as our native English. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I understand some of the French translations have magnificent. That's just fine. Those words largely overlap. Whether it's majestic or magnificent, we'll be focusing on the same concept here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glories above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet... You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us this morning as we come to your word, as we look at Psalm 8. How amazing to have these words from King David from 3,000 years ago that still ring with such wonder and awe and relevance to us, showing that you, Father, the ancient of days, are enduringly relevant. 2022 in the U.S. and in Canada and all over the world. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And so would you meet us here in your word this morning as we look at your majesty, your magnificence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1977... A pastor from California, his name is Jack Hayford, 
visited England with his wife during the Silver Jubilee. That's the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's accession to the throne. She came to the throne in 1952. So 77 was the 25th anniversary. And while these two unsuspecting Americans were in Great Britain, they were struck by the grandeur of this celebration of the Silver Jubilee. And they could tell there was manifest joy in the people about their monarch. And while they were there, they visited Blenheim Palace. Has anyone ever been to Blenheim Palace? Blenheim Palace is the birthplace of Winston Churchill. And it's famous for its magnitude and its stateliness. The kind of magnitude and stateliness that North Americans sometimes only know through watching episodes of Downton Abbey. As they were driving away from the palace and they were overcome with awe, Pastor Hayford found himself reaching for words, trying to find language that would transpose the weight of this earthly experience into the key of heaven. As he stretched for what to say, the word that seemed most fitting, both to describe the stunning magnificence of the palace and how it pointed to the superiority of the reigning Christ was the word majesty. According to one California newspaper that told the story back in 2015, as the Hayfords pulled themselves from that regal palace and drove away, Pastor Hayford asked his wife to take a notebook and write down some thoughts that were coming to him. Then he began to dictate the lyrics, the key, and the timing to a song that is now sung by Christians worldwide. Perhaps you know it. Hayford's impulse to reach for the word majesty, however much he knew it at the time or not, it was a deeply biblical impulse. Majesty is indeed a frequent and carefully chosen word in Scripture attributed to the living God. And it's, frankly, a trait often overlooked in studies of the divine attributes. Maybe you've done a study on the divine attributes, of his, his omni-attributes, omnipresent, omni potent, omniscient. He's immutable, wise, good, just, merciful, loving, holy. And he's majestic, as Psalm 8 teaches. Majestic sheds important light on many of his other well-rehearsed attributes. God's majesty is truly, deeply, wonderfully fit for our worship as Hayford intuited, perhaps with the help of Psalm 8. And so he wrote, Majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Some of you know it. Majesty, kingdom authority, 
flows from his throne unto his own, his anthem race. In English and in French. <laughs> Amen. God's majesty is highlighted in greater proportions, perhaps nowhere, than in Psalm 8 because of the first line and the last line. It's the beginning, we get the content, and then we return to the refrain to enjoy its depths even more. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Those who, like Pastor Hayford, reach for the word majesty often find themselves standing before or remembering some natural or man-made wonder that's both imposing and at the same time attractive. Imposing and yet attractive. In our language, as in biblical terms, the word captures not only greatness but Goodness is both bigness and beauty. There is awesome power and pleasant admiration of that power. Mountains might be the quintessentially majestic natural feature. Can you imagine yourself standing before mountains and thinking, it's majestic. Psalm 76, verse 4, declares in praise to God, Glorious are you, Lord. And then it adds, More majestic than the mountains. Alongside the illustrious plain of Sharon in ancient Israel, which had its own peculiar glory, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 2, gives a prophecy of the future flourishing of God's people and hails the majesty of Mount Carmel, the mountain. Yesterday, as Alex was driving me from Montreal here to Gatineau, I know there's various ways to say it, Gatineau, Gatineau, I'm, I'm trying. As we drove along the highway and saw the colors, especially as we came into some rolling hills and saw the colors of the leaves, it was hard not to say, it's majestic. Now, it wasn't the Rocky Mountains. It wasn't huge. It was little rolling hills that I saw off to the right as we were driving west. But it was majestic to see the colors, to see the expanse. Alongside mountains and the mountain majesties, we might also attribute majesty to gold or to some precious material or gem that might be fit for a king that dazzles the eye with its beauty. The book of Job, verse, chapter 37, verse 22, links God's awesome majesty with golden splendor. But not only natural phenomena, like mountains, gold, gems, but also the work of human hands, when on a grand scale, might have us reaching for the word majestic. Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 6, mourns the loss of civic majesty, the kind of majesty you might see in a capital city. Civic majesty after the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. And not long after, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's royal king, professes to have built his city, he says, by his mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of his majesty. <laughs> 
And that just before his great humbling. How then does the common use of the word majesty for mountains, for mansions, for gold, for cities, relate to attributing majesty to God, as Psalm 8 does? Majesty brings together both greatness and goodness, both strength and beauty. Majesty is not only a fitting term for majestic mountains, but a particularly appropriate descriptor of God, who Isaiah 10, 34 says, is the majestic one. At a critical place in the history of Israel, God's old covenant people, they've gathered to assemble under the leadership of King David, who wrote Psalm 8. And as they've gathered there in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, they're dedicating the materials they've brought together for the temple, which would not be built under David's life, but under his son Solomon. But they're dedicating their offerings for the temple. And King David prays this in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 13. He said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. I want to focus on the three descriptors that begin verse 11. David says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness. Yours, O Lord, is the power. Yours, O Lord, is the glory. And I want to consider those three. As we get to Psalm 8, consider those three as the main angles that give us sight unto what is God's majesty in the scriptures. Then we'll come to Psalm 8. So number one, first and foremost, is his greatness. Majesty communicates his greatness. The opening verse of Psalm 104 declares, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Likewise, after the dramatic delivery of God's people from Egypt at the Red Sea, one of the key terms they reach for in their praise of God in Exodus 15 is majesty. The people sing, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Exodus 15. Later in Babylon, as Nebuchadnezzar tells about this great humbling, he experienced after celebrating his own majesty and his restoration he speaks of his majesty greatness having returned to him he says still more greatness was added to me and speaks it in a more humble way this time in Daniel 4 many of you know Micah's favorite famous Bethlehem prophecy from Micah chapter 5 verse 4 that we read at Christmas and there he attributes greatness to the majesty of God 
in a coming one who will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great till the ends of the earth. Majesty often connotes a, a greatness in size, like with mountains, like with mansions. The prophet Ezekiel talks about majestic nations, meaning large nations that were once numerous and powerful and now humbled by the hand of God in Ezekiel 32. But that greatness also can include God's right and his prerogative as God to rule and do what he pleases. As David prayed, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty for all that is in the heavens and earth is yours. It's not only his because he has the most power, not only his by might, but as God, all is his by right. God not only has the might to rule, but the right to rule over his creation. So greatness is bound up with his majesty. Second, majesty is also tied to God's power and his strength. David says, yours, O Lord, is the power. He's looked at Micah 5.4. Not only does Micah 5.4 connect God's majesty with his divine strength in shepherding his people, but also with power. Psalm 68.34 forges the bond even stronger between majesty and power. Ascribe to God power, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. David says in the next verse, awesome is God in his sanctuary. He is majestic not only in the power he possesses, but also in the power that he gives generously to his people. Psalm 68, 35, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. And so in Psalm 29, we hear the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So majesty is connected with with strength, greatness, and strength, power. And third, as David prays, yours, O Lord, is the glory. The glory of greatness and power and glory, the ties are deepest with glory. Which brings us to Psalm 8 which is a psalm about glory. And it is Scripture's signature celebration of the majesty of God. Psalm 8 manifestly sings of His glory. God's glory is set above the heavens, verse 1. And man's glory from God as the one He is crowned with glory and honor, verse 5. And so that memorable opening line, reprised as the final note, hails the majesty of God's name in overtones of glory. O oh Lord, how Lord, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How glorious is your name. 
And here, in Psalm 8, under the banner of God's majesty and his magnificence and his excellence, we find two levels or two modes, you might say, of divine majesty. See if you can track that with me here in Psalm 8. First is what we might call a natural mode of majesty. It is the majesty that natural eyes can see. The heavens, verses 1 and 3. The moon and the stars, verse 3. We might presume the quintessentially majestic natural features like mountains, like seas, vast expanses that remind us of our smallness and the awe-inspiring bigness and power of the one who made such majesties. There's a natural mode of majesty that all eyes can see. But then, second is what we might call a special mode of majesty. And that's the particular emphasis of Psalm 8. Begins with natural majesty, but the heart of the psalm is a special majesty, an unexpected majesty, a peculiar majesty. Verse 2 mentions the mouths of babes and infants testifying to God's strength. Can't help but think of Exodus 15. The weak people, like babes and infants, as the Egyptian army comes down on them and they're hemmed in against the back of the Red Sea. They are as babes and infants against Pharaoh and his 600 strong chariots. And Exodus 15 out of the mouth of babes. He declares the strength. They declare the strength of God in the face of foes and enemies and avengers. And then at the heart of the psalm, verses 3 to 8, marvel at his grace toward mankind. What's so surprising about the psalm? After verse 1, we might expect celebration of the heavens and the mountains and go on and on about the seas and the vast expanses of creation that believing and unbelieving can see. But verses 3 to 8 then focus on this special majesty. In view of such natural majesties like the heavens. And isn't it great that David, the psalmist here, calls it your heavens? Not just the heavens, your heavens. God, you made them. They are yours, your heavens. In view of such natural majesty, like the heavens, his heavens, and the moon, and the stars, and mountains, and oceans, the prophet asks, David asks the king, what is man that you're mindful of him? So small, so seemingly insignificant, standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon standing before mountain majesties. What is man? Yet, verse 5, and this is the yet of grace. The grace of God is deeply tied to the glory of God, which is majestic in Psalm 1-8. In Psalm 8. Yet, God has made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him. It's grace. 
undeserving, crowned him with glory and honor. In a majestic creation, God made man in his smallness and limitation in God's image and gave man dominion over the works of his hands. The beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea are to be subject to man, says Genesis 1 and echoes Psalm 8. So we might see here in Psalm 8 both natural majesty and special majesty. In Psalm 8, while acknowledging the obvious majesty of God in the bigness, in the beauty of creation, emphasizes the unexpected ways of our God, the majesty of his unexpected glory, which further demonstrates his majesty. This doesn't take his majesty down. It takes it up. He's already majestic over the mountains and heavens. This takes it up. He shows his greatness and his power not only through the heavens and the moon and stars and mountains, but also through humans and through the mouths of babes and infants who declare his praise. He shows himself majestic not just through the heavens, but through humans, and in particular, the ones we least expect, the most humble of humans. The point of Psalm 8 is this. God's grace toward man is to the glory of his majesty. The point of Psalm 8 is not how great man is, but how graced man is, and how great God is. He is our God, O Lord, our Lord. He's our God because of his grace. He is majestic in greatness and in power and in glory and majestic in his grace toward us, so much so that he is our Lord. What grace. And in this striking dignifying of humanity in Psalm 8, if there is any doubt in our minds, as man is built up in Psalm 8 because of God's grace, if there's any doubt in our minds where the accent falls in Psalm 8, come back to the last line. The last line brings it home. How majestic is God's name. Grace to man, glory to God. The primary emphasis confirmed in the last line is God and his grace. And while in Psalm 8 we do indeed glimpse God's greatness and power, the accent falls on his glory. It's no coincidence that David takes up the word majestic in Psalm 8 because it's a psalm of praise. Majesty is a word of praise because divine majesty is so closely connected to divine glory that we might even see the word majesty as providing God's people with further language for glory, for their praise. We want to express and commend and marvel at our God and his glory and his beauty. 
And so along with the word splendor in English, which is often paired with majesty in the Psalms, the term majesty expands our vocabulary for glory. Our God is so great, so admirable, so wonderful, so awesome in the eyes of his people and so fearsome in the eyes of his enemies that the Hebrew word kavod and the Greek word doxa and the English word glory and the French word gloire. Thank you, Sergey. Gloire are not enough for his worshipers. We need more words for glory to praise our God. We need more terms. We want to press more language into the service of worship. As we seek to keep speaking of Him in His beauty, in His power, in His greatness, in His glory, we grope for language like dominion, authority, splendor, majesty. At times... We might even pile words upon words, like Psalm 145 does. The glorious splendor of your majesty. What a word of praise. That word majesty, and with it magnificence, which is very close, majesty is emotive. It's affective. It indicates greatness in sight or sound that is also wonderful. It's bigness that is beautiful. It's imposing size viewed with delight. Imposing power that's received as attractive. While it has significant overlap with words like dominion or lordship, very important, lordship, majesty does more than mere lordship. Dominion and lordship are more technical or prosaic terms, while majesty rings more poetic with the awe of our worship. In the end, it may be majesty's poetic ring that makes it such a precious word to the church in our worship. As Jack Hayford groped for language to voice the wonder that was rising in his soul far beyond the legacy of English tradition and the larzess of its palaces, that is, reverence for the living God, majesty came to him not as a technical, functional, denotive term, not an academic answer. Majesty had a feel. It communicated soul-expanding awe at the greatness and power and glory of God. It was a mouthing of worship out of the mouths of babes and infants like us. The choice of the word majesty then says something about the speaker. It communicates something about the person that chose the word. Majesty attributes not only greatness and power and glory, but signals awe and wonder in the one who speaks it. God's friends, not his foes, declare his majesty. At the Red Sea, in the eyes of the Egyptians, as the cloud of 
smoke turned on them in the fire of divine wrath and brought back the seas to the destruction of the enemies of God's people. They did not say, Majesty. They said, Terror. His striking size and strength were not for them, but against them. But in the eyes of Israel, in the sight of God's people, their God was indeed majestic. That's the word they choose in Exodus 15. In his greatness, in his power, and worthy of praise for terrifying and wiping out their enemies. He saved his people in his majesty. Yet the main emphasis we said in Psalm 8 is his grace. His grace toward his people. Which brings us to what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 in that enigmatic passage about a suffering servant that was to come. Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. From the beginning to the end of Jesus' earthly life, he magnified the majesty of his Father. Not himself. Jesus would not have had a trending Instagram account based on his looks. No form or majesty that we should look at him. He glorified his Father. And so he spoke. And so he acted. As Luke 9, 43 says, all were astonished at the majesty of God as they saw Christ and what he did. Yet even then, there was a greater majesty to come. So Luke continues, but while they were all marveling at everything that Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Don't be distracted by all the natural majesty to miss this, the special. He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, he would add special majesty to the natural majesty. To natural eyes, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. But he became. Now, to those who have eyes to see, the supremely majestic one. After the resurrection, with eyes now fully awake to grace, Peter testifies of being an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. 2 Peter chapter 1. And now, the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, has been super exalted and seated on heaven's throne and sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. As we close, I can't help but say one more thing about Psalm 8 because of an observation that Hebrews chapter 2 makes about Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says, 
God has put everything under his feet. I'm talking about human beings. Put everything under his feet. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 comments, At present, we do not yet see everything in subject to him. I love his close reading of Psalm 8. By virtue of making man in his image, he gives him the right of dominion over the world and puts everything by right under his feet. But we do not yet see everything under humanity's feet. The right's there. The might is not yet there. We're working on that as a species. But, Hebrews says, we see him. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death that he might taste death for us by the grace of God. So even though the vision of Psalm 8 is not yet fulfilled for all of us in its fullness, it is now fulfilled in Christ who's crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of majesty in heaven who has pioneered our path for the majesty that is one day to be shared with and we're to be drawn in because of the majesty that Christ has achieved as man on heaven's throne through suffering and resurrection. So perhaps you find yourself in need of fresh language from time to time for attributing greatness and power and glory to the God whom we worship in Christ. He is not only great, he is good. He's good in his greatness. And he is great in his goodness. He is not only big, strong, imposing, indomitable, omnipotent. He's beautiful. He's attractive. He's stunning. He's compelling. He's glorious. He is the majestic one who delivered Israel at the Red Sea and delivered his church at the cross. And so we say, with Psalm 145, verse 5, Oh, the glorious splendor of your majesty. On your wondrous works, I will meditate. And so we worship his majesty. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see more majesty. In our lives, perhaps especially city life, our eyes are so often closed to the natural majesty that you have put in your world, in the heavens, in the moon and stars, in the sun, in the oceans, in the mountains, in the changing of the leaves. Father, open our eyes to natural majesty. But Father, all the more would you open the eyes of our hearts to the majesty of your grace for us in Christ. That the one who was without form or majesty because of his suffering and death has become the supremely majestic one in our hearts and for all eternity. He will be great in our sight, in his greatness, in his power, in his glory. Father, give us eyes for the majesty of Jesus. In Jesus' precious name we pray.
Amen.